0: Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction.
1: Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic.
0: We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient
1: settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute.
0: I I was laying on my storage floor in like below 40 degree weather. And um, I didn't know what else to do. And I reached out for help. Um, I came back into Minneapolis because I was outside of Minneapolis. And I came back and I, within 24 hours, did a Rule 25. And the woman who did my Rule 25, like I couldn't even, I had had some trauma happen right on my way there. And so I couldn't even like look at her. I could, I was like really antagonistic of every question she asked but it's like I was the one there like asking for help but yet I was like I don't want to answer any of your questions and all of a sudden I just looked at her and I was just like I'm gonna die if you let me walk out of here without a bed and um and she said okay and she had funding before I left her office and within an hour Pride called me and said that they had a bed for me the next morning Wow. So when you say you were laying on your storage, like a storage unit. Yeah. So you were living in a storage unit. I was up in Fargo, North Dakota. Brr.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yuck. So I was born and raised in Fargo. I graduated from high school there. So that is like so much colder than the Twin Cities. Yeah. And people think it's crazy when you say that. But if you go like three hours north, it is like night and day different. Mm-hmm. It's,
0: it's, it's horrible. So it was like beginning of December. And um, I had burned every bridge that, I mean rightfully so. I mean, there was no reason to have the bridges I had (laughs) at the time, but I had gotten so paranoid to the point where like, I couldn't even be around people anymore. So I couldn't, where like people always let me stay with them or like, I mean, I definitely became like house bitch. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I was that girl. Um, but it came to that point where I was so paranoid that they were out to get me that I, I couldn't even, I couldn't even, um, allow them to help me, like even for a roof over my head to be warm. Or to have a bathroom,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and so I was just isolating. I didn't have a phone that worked, only by internet, and you had to be like outside because inside of my like my tin storage unit, it didn't get the like reception. Um, and and I was just at my bottom, like I I really for the for the first time in my adult life, I was like, this is it. Like like I hope this I hope this blast is last. Mm -hmm. Um, And not in the meaning of like getting sober, I was hoping that it would take my life. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a mother and I've always taken that very seriously in that sense of like, I mean, when I would get high with people, I would say like, I'm a mom, like you have to call 911 if I OD because I'm going to do the same for you. But that would be like, that would be my starting thing. I'd be like, I'm a mother Like, you can't just let me die. And laying on that floor, I was just like, I'm ready. I'm just ready. Mm
1: -hmm. What I think is so powerful about what you just said is, like, with, I guess, women and female identifying people, they carry so much more weight the minute that they become a mom, Mm -hmm. because it becomes there's this unwritten rule that you're living for other people before yourself. Absolutely. And... Can you talk a little bit about the weight of carrying around that?
0: I know that for me, um, <clears throat> in my addiction, my addiction really grabbed a hold um, once my daughter was out of my home. Um, not that she didn't grow up with a lot of bullshit. because She did. And my hidden addictions throughout the years. But once, once, um, once my addiction took full heart, I just, the shame that came with it. The shame that I wasn't, um, I didn't, 90% of the time I did not have a phone. So she had no way to like contact me. I abandoned her kind of as at her moment of like becoming a young adult with no help to know or guide her of like how to do that. I mean, and she did an awesome job. I mean, she is, I I would like her even if she wasn't mine, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, but there was, for me, it was mostly shame that, that drove then into further addiction of like, I didn't answer that last phone call. I can't get to her in the middle of the night when she's crying and, and, and the weight of the world is on her shoulders and I'm unable to get there. And it just kind of catapulted me even further into my addiction. I mean, by no means is it any reason of my addiction, but it definitely kept me spiraling in there because whenever it would come up or we would talk for a couple of days. And then all of a sudden I realized I hadn't talked to her in three months
1: and that would just spiral me down again. And it's interesting too, because I think, you know, people say like the drunken um, the mind speaks the sober heart, which I don't know if I necessarily buy that. I think with some people, there's like very Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, like who you are when you're using is not who you are sober. But mm-hmm. it's fascinating to me that even when you were using and when you were high, you knew enough to say, like, you have to call 911 because I'm a mom. So that clearly was embedded into your system.
0: It was one of my biggest fears, is that, um, that my choices would lead to a conversation that my daughter would have to have with a stranger
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, about me not ever coming back. I <clears throat> that's a, That was a huge fear of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not... I've caused so much havoc and, and pain within, within our relationship and within her life. And I, I didn't want to be the one that like made it so she could never move on because of my choices. And that's what that felt like to me. Like mm-hmm. If she would get that call, I would ruin her life. And that's the last thing I wanted to do.
1: You mentioned how, and I love this. You would like her even if she wasn't yours. Um, yeah. Where are you today?
0: Um, she's my best friend. Um, she's a huge supporter. She's the reason why I got down here. She was the phone call. Mm. I called her and um, and told her I was done and I need and I needed help. I didn't know how to get out, and um, she set very firm boundaries. <laughs> and I was just like, who taught you that? <laughs> But, um, you know, like I wasn't allowed to stay with her. I had to stay at a shelter. Um, I wasn't allowed to spend the night at her house, um, that she had, that I had to figure out if they were taking people. Cause this was in the middle of the pandemic where we, everything was shut down. You know, some treatment centers weren't even taking in, mm-hmm. um, people. And so she had these very like strict lines of what it had to look like. And, um, and it made me feel like I shouldn't have reached out. It made me feel um, unheard, but in all reality, I mean, it was exactly what needed to happen. And I'll tell you, she did not miss a beat though. When she we, we got right into town and she took me Straight to Harbor Lights Shelter, mm-hmm. downtown Minneapolis. Like mm-hmm. everybody outside, and she was like, "Bye, mom. Have a good night." Because <laughs> like, like there's something within me that I really thought that like she would, she wouldn't. Uh
1: huh.
0: Do you know what I mean? Like, I know Harbor Lights. I know where I'm going. Do you know what I mean? Like, I have this in the back of my mind. Like, sh- she's not gonna be able to do it. She's not gonna be able to do it. She literally was like, "You need one more cigarette." I was like, "Yes. <laughs> Goodbye." <laughs>
1: Uh, I love that. <laughs> I want to backtrack a little bit because you had mentioned rule 25. So for our listeners who don't know what that is, mm-hmm. that's an assessment that's done by the state of Minnesota to help with um, getting people into treatment and getting access to treatment. So, but you, you did mention um, you were in Fargo. So did you mm-hmm. get that done in Moorhead?
0: No, I did not. Okay. Um, so literally I called uh, my daughter on a uh, Friday mm-hmm. and she came and got me on a Sunday. I didn't tell anybody that I was leaving. I'd been up there for about four years. Hmm. So I didn't tell anyone goodbye. I didn't tell anyone I was leaving because I was so afraid that they were going to intervene. Because mm. that's how paranoid I was. Mm-hmm. I, was in, I was in full psychosis. And then I left with her Sunday. And Like I said, I spent the night at the Harbor Lights. And, the, and they treated me quite well. <laughs> and then um, the next day, I, w- I walked um, from Loring Park um, to, um, to Park Avenue. Cause they were still doing walk-ins and, and like I said, I, I walked in there and, and the woman, she believed me and, and, and she didn't let me leave without some kind of like light at the end of the tunnel. Mm
1: -hmm. Rule 25 assessments are so important. And I think living in the state of Minnesota, we all complain about how cold it is and how, you know, it's not California. It's not whatever, but like, thank God that we have access to this for this specific Uh, Mm -hmm. demographic, because it's so important that people get help.
0: It really is. Minneapolis is so different. Like Minnesota is so different. So even just like a neighboring state like North Dakota. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to, um, I had tried probably about three months before that, you know, kind of in a state of clarity, like call the rule 25 person. And, um, when I called North Dakota, they were like, cause I was homeless and not really a resident anymore. And I still have my Minnesota that I had to go in Minnesota. So just like right over the border is Moorhead, Minnesota. And I tried to get a rule 25 there. And, um, because I had warrants for my arrest, they wouldn't do it mm-hmm. until I turned myself in. Horrible. Wow. Um, so I literally at that point, I was just like, well, okay, mm-hmm. watch me. Yeah. <laughs> watch how far I can go since you don't want to help at all. You know, which is, I mean, it's crazy to think of like a 40 something year old woman that can still just like throw hands up and just say, yeah. you know, F it. Yeah. But that's how it made me feel.
1: And so what was your experience like when you um, were admitted into pride?
0: Oh, <laughs> it was, it was quite of an experience. So, again, I was in full psychosis. (laughs) And um, so, like, first, like, Russian lady, like, Sasha, seriously, when she's like, Rachel. And then I was like, oh, my God. What did I do to deserve
1: this?
0: (laughs) But um, everybody, but the truth is, is everybody was super kind. Uh Um, At that point, I was terrified of the world. Mm -hmm. I thought I was followed all the way to pride. I thought... Things were kind of being orchestrated around me that did not exist, and and so so my first day there was mostly intake, and then I kind of went into my room, and then for the next eight days I didn't come out, and it got to the point where they were like ready to like to kick me out, like you're not participating, you're not willing, and the I couldn't I couldn't vocalize to them that I was terrified of them. Like, I just really felt like they were a part of them, which them does not exist. Um, you know, I I couldn't have the shades in the room opened because I believed that people could see in. Like, but that they were trying to see in. Uh, that's, I mean, they can't see in, but, but that they were actually trying to. And trust me, nobody was.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> but um, Patrick actually is the one that got me... Um, Patrick and Joe. Joe isn't there anymore. The tech. Um, Joe protected me. He got it. He got it. I wasn't eating or anything because I didn't. I couldn't go into the lunchroom with everybody, and he would take me up during like NA and AA where everybody else is in like stuff at like seven o'clock at night, and he would stand on the edge of the cafeteria and not allow anybody else to come in there, mm. while I was eating. Mm-hmm. You know, like nobody else did that. I mean, Joe made me feel safe. Um, and then Patrick one day comes down to my room. And now mind you, like half the staff is in the room at the time. I'm not even kidding. Like three counselors, the entire nursing staff. The nurse practitioner won't even deal with me because my very first time are trying to check me out. I cussed her out and she told me to leave her office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I laugh now because I, I I have so much like love for all these people now. Yeah. Um, but Patrick like bent down cause I like, I had the covers over my face. Like I didn't want them to see me I was having a lot of hallucinations and he was, he just, he just told his truth of who he was to me and then he could help me. Mm. And there was something about him being like that vulnerable. I mean, and now I know Patrick and he says it all the time,
1: <laughs> but, in, but,
0: but in that moment, it really meant something to me. Yeah. I mean, he had no idea how I was going to react to that. I mean, guaranteed I was at Pride, but still, he has no idea like how I was going to receive what he was telling me or treat him. But he was still willing to do it. Mm-hmm. And then as they were walking out, Sasha turns around and she says, Rachel, you get up tomorrow. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get up tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that kind of... Um, that kind of just started it. I was like, okay, they can't, I mean, they can't all be terrible. <laughs>
1: yep.
0: All these people can't be out to get me in the way I, the way my brain thinks, you know? And that was what was so crazy is I, I knew that like in my heart of hearts, I knew that I was safe, but I couldn't, I just couldn't come out of it just that quickly. You know, it took me a little while.
1: Well, and I, I, we can speak, we see, you know, hundreds of people come through a program a year and that first week in treatment is no joke. It is hard. Like every day people are wanting to leave. Mm-hmm. Every day people are calling their families and saying, get me out of here. And then it's something weird around like day six, seven, where it's just like, okay, I'm where I'm supposed to be. and yeah. like, I'm going to do it now. Yeah. I don't know if you mentioned this or not, but what was your drug of choice?
0: Um, Methamphetamines. Mm. Um, I also, throughout the years, have used heroin. I was addicted to it at one point, but my, not by the time I came into um, Pride. I was using it, but not on any level that I was addicted. Meth is my is definitely my drug of choice. It created a numb that I had been seeking my entire life.
1: Mm. And so had you had any experiences with treatment prior to Pride? Once.
0: Mm. Um, <clears throat> I went to prison and... Um, I relapsed the day I got out of prison and my parole um, officer made me go to um, treatment. And I went to, and I went to what's considered like a really decent treatment, in Meadow Creek, mm-hmm. um, but m- um, for all women. Um, but my mentality back then, I was still very like in the addiction lifestyle. Like I wasn't like, I still talk to every single person I knew before I went to prison, which, like, that's how I ended up in prison. I mean, my own choices, obviously, my own actions, but, but, like, this lifestyle that all of a sudden, that I had never been in my entire life until I was, like, 35, and all of a sudden, just, like, everything went crazy, so I, and I was just, like, I've, I've just been down for, like, over a year, like, I've been clean. Like, what do I need this for? I couldn't tell you one counselor's name, not even my like main counselor. I can't tell you. I could not tell you one coping skill they, they taught me. And I guarantee they did all these things. Mm-hmm. I cannot tell you one person that I was there with, that I spoke to. Um, I stayed really, really isolated the whole time. And then I, I got out, went into sober living for like six months and, it was all, like, because I have to. And um, the minute I was out of sober housing, I started drinking. I'm not a huge drinker, but it always it always leads to something else for me. It's just, like, three drinks in and then it's, like, you know what's fun right now? Cocaine. <laughs> cocaine would be fun. You know what's better than cocaine? <laughs> Six days on methamphetamines.
1: <laughs> uh-huh.
0: like, like, it just is, like, this, you know, I just, like, go off the deep end. Um, and that's pretty much what happened. Um, within a year, I was full blown back into my addiction, um, and and kind of self-sabotaging every chance
1: I had. Um, yeah. I want to backtrack again, because I tend to do that. Okay. Um, you had mentioned on your way to get your Rule 25 assessment, you had showed up and experienced trauma. Um, what was that?
0: Okay, this is not my finest moment. Mm-hmm. I just
1: wanna
0: I know I'm smiling because it's the only way I can deal with it. <laughs> I'm serious. Mm-hmm. It's really I think more it's trauma that I gave to somebody else now hindsight. So I had left my daughter's house and I was walking and I was being followed, but I wasn't I wasn't being followed. Mm-hmm. Um but but I was in my mind like you could there's nothing you could have told me that would have made me believe otherwise. And it took a really long time to realize that I wasn't being followed. And I was coming right past McDonald's on Nicollet. And also this van turned out of the parking lot of McDonald's and this car came super fast and crashed into it, went up onto the sidewalk, pushed like four other cars out of the way and like pretty much like wrapped itself around a pole. Um, two people ran right away to the people in the van who had just kind of got spun around by how it hit, but just because of how it happened the other car that actually was in the wrong. And, um, you know, I used to, I used to do all my like CPR certification. I worked with the kids for many, many years. So I had some background. So, so my heart was in the right place. Like I got into this person's vehicle to make sure, like I knew to check, like make sure they're not pinned, make sure they don't move, make sure they don't try to get up, try to get out. You know what I mean? Are they awake? Try to keep them, like, conscious. Um, But while I did that, I talked to them about this wouldn't have happened if they wouldn't have been following me. Like, I think I got in the car and said, well, I mean, it's good to see you. I'm sorry it's like this.
1: Mm -hmm. You know? Um, Not my best moment. I mean, that's terrifying. Mm It is. It is.
0: Like, my thing is with it is, like, I look back and I just, makes me have a heavy heart that somebody else um, maybe has any, like, question of, like, what the hell was going on that day because of things that I said to them Mm -hmm. in a state of shock. It just, um, instead of just asking, like, are you okay? And having somebody care enough that, that way, but somebody accusing you while you're in a state of crisis so that i mean i've dealt with it but it it'll it'll like it always will weigh heavy Mm -hmm. um on me that that i affected somebody in a negative way like that and i I really i really hope they were in so much shock that they have no
1: idea (laughs)
0: that that conversation
1: happened i honestly i can imagine (laughs) that that was probably like the fifth most traumatic thing that happened to them from that experience yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like that's pretty i mean especially to be wrapped around other cars and yeah and whatever but um but i
0: got out of the car because i i had like a bunch of warrants for my arrest mm-hmm. and i was just like i have to get to my roll
1: 25
0: so yeah. like the minute i heard like the siren super close i just like got out of the car like, oh. and just like walked yeah. away <laughs> And I was just like, oh, priorities. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to do me. <laughs> it's so bad, though. Like I like I said, I, I laugh about it because there's not there's I mean, that, and that's the least of all the things I wish I could take back. Let me tell you what. But I mean, it is definitely one of them that I that I have. I, I, I feel guilty about, mm-hmm. you know.
1: But with humor, I mean, humor is one of the most important tools we have. Carrie Fisher said this, um, like, if I can't laugh at my life, then it's just sad. And that's unacceptable. Mm. So This is true. mm -hmm. Um, Talk about where you're at today. How have you been able to maintain your sobriety?
0: Um, There's been a couple things that have been been huge. Um, So, like I said, I didn't say goodbye to anybody, and I have not looked back. I took no one with me. Mm. Um, There's, you know, there's no need for somebody that we used to put needles in our arm together. Mm -hmm. I don't have any use. And, and they shouldn't have any use for me either. Hmm. My willingness, I guess, is really what it is that has brought me to where I am today. Um, when I was at Pride at up day like 30 something, I was like, So how long do you think you're gonna be here? And John looked at me and he was just like, 90 days. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Oh, oh, okay.
1: Well okay. that's
0: what we're doing, you know, and just kind of left it at that. I didn't ever really like fight against the recommendations. Um Because I knew what I was doing wasn't working. So I obviously didn't know how to make the choices that I needed to because it hadn't been working. Mm -hmm. You know, and so far I was feeling better and better every day with doing the things that they told me I needed to do. Um, I went into a step down program. I went to Navon. Mm -hmm. They were awesome. Um, I met my mentor there, um, who now is one of my dearest friends, um, who I'm able to look up to and... um, As for guidance, I have um, made sure to uh, really make a community that's sober around me. Um, I stayed in a sober house about six altogether nine months because of that step down program, and then going to another one for about six months. I did New Way also, and. I just kind of kept letting the people that I truly knew knew what they were doing, kind of like do what they do. You know, if they were like, Rachel, I think you, you know, if you need to be at five meetings a week, I was at five meetings a week. Um, Choosing to um, heal myself. I've been in therapy. I'm still in therapy. I don't know if I'll ever not be in therapy. Um, Even, even just being like a soundboard um, at this point, you know, things are going really well. I have my own apartment. I work full time. Um, and I'm slowly figuring out what I, what I enjoy, like hobbies wise, because I don't really know, like for 10 years, I've chased something that doesn't exist. And so, so me learning how to like, kind of navigate my world and find joy is just a little bit different. Like, it might not be as like like explosive as I, I used to think that like joy is, but I'm content and I'm happy. And at the end of the day, I don't wake up at night worrying about what I did or said um, and how it impacted me or anyone else. Letting it go. Rachel, thanks so much for being here today. You are a presence. I really appreciate your time. Thanks.
1: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices.
0: You can find us where you find all your favorite podcasts.
1: Don't forget to follow and subscribe.
0: We'll see you next time.